Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Bad Gaze, a podcast where we uncover the dark side of gaming and history. I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and novelist. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, gay historian and member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. And each episode we'll be profiling a different gay villain from history, looking at their life in context and how their sexuality informed their infamy. We want to complicate gay history by talking about evil people and complicated people. We're focusing on men because cis men are definitionally the most bad, and we're asking why we don't remember our villains as well as we sometimes remember our heroes. Truman Capote referred to these bad boys as killer fruit, a certain kind of queer who has Freon refrigerating his bloodstream. Last week we talked about a gay conservative writer who normalized gay marriage, demobilized gay movements, and advocated for race science. So who are we talking about this week, Hugh? This week we're discussing the art historian and writer Anthony Blunt. The youngest son of a vicar, Anthony Blunt was born into a well-off family in 1907. His father became a vicar for the British Embassy in Paris, and as such, the young Blunt spent several years in the city as a child, and as a result, he became fascinated with the artistic and cultural life of France, and he was a fluent French speaker from a young age. And he was very much part of the British establishment. His third cousin was Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, the future Queen Mother, and he was also a distant relative of the fascist leader Oswald, Oswald Mosley. Hmm. Uh, he went to a school at the pre- prestigious private school, Marlborough College, and he was a very sensitive child and, and badly bullied as a result. His friend, the poet Louis McNeese, who was at school with him, said, Boys of that age are especially sadistic. They would seize him, tear off most of his clothes and cover him with house paint, then put him in a basket and push him around and around the hall. Government of the mob, by the mob and for the mob. A perfect ex- exhibition of mass sadism. I have to say that every time I hear a story about English boarding school, uh, nothing about how fucked up a lot of the actions of the elite of that country are uh, can surprise me. Yeah. Anyway, he was um, he became very interested in art at this time um, at school, and he was a precocious defender of modern art against his conservative art tutor, and uh, and he was very intelligent. He arrived at Cambridge for a scholarship. Uh, and he received a first in modern languages, and he went on to complete his graduate research in art history. So, so far, so British. Sounds like, as you say, a classic story of the British elite. However, while he was in Cambridge, he would make some connections and relationships which would split his life in two, and he would continue to live a double life for the next 50 years. Hmm. He became a member of a group called the Cambridge Apostles. Uh, The Apostles are a secret society, which is not quite a frat group, um, but sort of part of a legacy of debating institutions and secret societies within elite universities in Germany, in the UK and the US. And the Apostles are a tiny group of 12 students, hence the name, and they meet every Saturday night. They drink coffee, they eat sardines on toast, and then one member gives her prepared talk on a given subject and the rest of the group discuss it. Well, so far that sounds pretty wholesome. Yeah, and it's had some extremely prestigious former members. Uh, John Maynard Keynes, Ludwig Wittgenstein, E.M. Forster, Lord Tennyson, Eric Hobsbawm, all of them were apostles. And while Blunt was there, he was a member alongside men such as the American writer Michael Strait, with whom he would have a romantic relationship, uh, Leo Long, Victor Rothschild, and Guy Burgess. Cambridge at that time was experiencing a new phenomenon. This was the... 1920, late 1920s, uh, an increasing rise in Marxist thought and political engagement from the left. A young economics lecturer called Morris Dobb was an unapologetic communist and a member of the party, and a young Blunt was very influenced by Dobb in his economic thought. Dobb was also a committed organiser. He believed that he was a man of action as well as theory, 
and so Blunt became part of this small but important communist tendency at the time. Although academically he dedicated himself to his burgeoning career as an art historian where he became the preeminent expert on the French Baroque painter Nicolas Poussin. So this strand of his life, the establishment figure, the upper class intellectual elitist, the eminent art historian, very stuffy, very precise, a snobby queer essentially, mm -hmm. uh, that became his public face for most of his life. He curated a groundbreaking Poussin show at the Louvre in 1960. He received many honorary fellowships. He wrote a number of important books on French and Italian art history. He was even the picture advisor to the National Trust, which our British listeners will recognise is about as middle-class establishment as you can get. He was a professor of history of art at the University of London and then later became the di director of the Courtauld art, uh, Institute of Art in London where he taught for 27 years and which became the core of his life's work. And in his favour, he was regarded extremely highly as a kind and committed teacher by the other staff, and he really did help shape the courthold into the institution that it's regarded as today. It's interesting. I mean, I might have expected a Marxist emerging art historian coming up in this environment um, of the 1920s and 30s to express an interest or focus in more modernist or avant-garde work and not this kind of um, really sort of hyper-traditional French Baroque work that seems to be the, the focus of his own research and expertise. Well, it, it seemed to all intents and purposes as though the Marxism was a youthful flirtation and then later he became extremely establishment. For example, uh, after the Second World War, he became the surveyor of the King's pictures and the Queen's pictures, so was working directly for the royal family. Hmm. Um, and that's that was how he was was known for most of his life. So with such a sort of prominent and an eminent public life, you might be wondering what could his secret double life possibly have been. But as you said, the clue is in this youthful flirtation with Marxism, which actually he didn't really grow out of. In 1934, while he was at Cambridge, uh, Blunt, alongside fellow apostle Guy Burgess, was recruited by the NKVT the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs, which was the Soviet Interior Ministry running intelligence agents and later went on to run the gulags. Wow. Yeah. Um, he turned spy? He became a spy, yeah. Um, and this was the start of a lifelong career. He claimed that it was Burgess himself who recruited him, although others claim that he recruited Burgess. The whole thing, of course, is impossible to know. It's a web of different um, uh, different stories and we don't really know who we can trust. But according to the author John Costello, um, quote, Blunt was intensely fond of Burgess and his personal loyalty never wavered. Burgess and Blunt did not share a lifelong sexual passion for each other, according to the bedmates. Such evidence as there is confirms that their intimacy quickly outgrew the bedroom. This was in keeping with the character of Burgess and his insatiable sexual appetite. Burgess had a peculiar talent for transform transforming his former lovers into close friends. To many of them, including Blunt, he became both father-confessor and pimp, who could be relied on to procure partners. Burgess devoured sex as he did alcohol, an overindulgence that suggests he was drowning a deep sense of sexual inadequacy. Hmm. I have seen another account which says that they outgrew their sexual relationship because, and I quote, they were both bottoms. Ah! <laughs> I would never say something so essentialist. Oh, of course not, no. But they quickly became aspiring then, therefore, in Cambridge with Burgess and Blunt. And it was formed around the journalist and NKVD agent uh, Phil, Kim, Kim Philby, who had been recruited earlier that year by the Czech agent Arnold Deutsch. 
So this is the late 1920s or early no, this 1930s? Is, this, this is 1934. They were all recruited within the, the same year. And he's still at Cambridge in 1934 as a student? Yeah, as a, a, yes, a, as a postgraduate student. As a postgraduate student. And he okay. later became a fellow at Trinity College. And this is a moment when um, Hitler has just come to power in Germany and tensions are rising uh, across Europe. And so the um, all countries are kind of beefing up their intelligence capabilities as part of this increasing armament. Yeah, exactly. As listeners to previous podcasts might remember, this was the year that the Night of the Long Knives happened. So it was the time of the sort of coale- coalescing of fascist power. And it also looked to um, young communists like the Western democratic capitalist countries were really preparing to make a deal with Hitler. Right. And in a broader sense, preparing to either go fascist or go communist. Absolutely, yeah. And so alongside Philby, Blunt and Burgess was um, fellow party member and undergraduate Donald McLean, and then another agent who would later become known as the fifth man because his identity wasn't revealed. And together, these five agents would later become known as the Cambridge Five. They were unusual amongst intelligence agents at the time, both because they were very ideologically committed, but they were also living and working at the very heart of the British establishment. Christopher Andrew wrote in his book, The Defence of the Realm, quote, Deutsch shared the same visionary faith as his Cambridge recruits in the future of a human race freed from the exploitation and alienation of the capitalist system. His message of liberation had all the greater appeal for the five because it had a sexual as well as political dimension. All were rebels against the strict sexual mores as well as the antiquated class system of interwar Britain. Burgess and Blunt were gay and Maclean bisexual at a time when homosexual relations, even between consenting adults, were illegal. And I think it's also interesting here to think about um, this is also just when Stalin is beginning to consolidate power in the Soviet Union and um, the social conservatism of the Soviet Union dates back to Stalin, but in the pre-Stalin years, the Soviet Union actually has decriminalized homosexuality. Um, Magnus Hirschfeld, the German-Jewish sexologist whose uh, work we've mentioned earlier in the show, um, a lot of his international contacts are there. He travels there at one point in the 1920s and comes back with very enthusiastic reports about this uh, place where um, attitudes have become much more uh, tolerant and modern. And um, and Blunt would be totally aware of this because the year before, in 1933, he had travelled to the Soviet Union and would have therefore experienced that and seen this model of a more liberated and sexually open society, even oh. as it was starting to be repressed. Right. Anyway, in 1935, Maclean was admitted into the British Diplomatic Service and he became a civil servant of the Foreign Office. Philby was a journalist who covered the Spanish Civil War, but in 1940 he was recruited into Special Operations Executive and then into MI6. Burgess, who'd been working for the BBC, had actively been attempting to court MI6 agents and was successfully recruited in 1939 into Section D, which was a propaganda arm of MI6. And the first part of their mission to infiltrate British security services was obviously a success. Now they could begin to pass their important state and military secrets over to their handlers in the Soviet Union. But it's really important to stress here that their establishment credentials and their class background allowed them to rise as high as double agents so easily. Burgess, for example, he wasn't even vetted before joining MI6. His Cambridge background just spoke for itself. So this is part of the reason why they became um, so so well known. They were seen as both um, of the right class background and then also... To a degree, their homosexuality was seen to have ruled them out of something 
so devious as espionage, perhaps. Huh. Blunt, meanwhile, had joined the British Army in the first world, in the Second World War, and after Dunkirk, uh, he was recruited into MI5, and he rose very quickly to be the assistant to Guy Liddell, who was Deputy Director General of MI5 at the time. And then Blunt was in charge of liaison between MI5 and the Allied Supreme Command Headquarters during D-Day. And he was involved in the mission to provide fake, in, uh, fake communications for the Germans to intercept, to suggest that D-Day would be taking place in, um, from Dover and not further west on the Normandy coast. Um, and during the entire war, the Cambridge Five, therefore, were passing huge amounts of information to the USSR, so much that actually they, the USSR, uh, the handlers in the USSR started to doubt whether the information was accurate and so they hadn't been turned back. Hmm. Burgess, for example, informed Stalin that the British were never going to make a pact with the Soviets in 1938, and he also informed them of um, Allied plans for Poland and the p potential war of the USSR after the Second World War. And Philby and Blunt were some of the most influential because they both had access to cracked Enigma codes, um, and they passed advance warning of both Operation Barbarossa, which was the Nazi invasion of the USSR, and the Japanese plan for intervention in Asia rather than an invasion of Russia, as Hitler had demanded. And this was particularly risky to the Allies because them passing over this information uh, that they could only have ever gained by decrypting the Enigma codes, which were the machines, uh, the secret coding machines that the Germans had used, which were thought to be unbreakable, but obviously that had been broken by the, by the Allies. Um, that was being passed over by an unprotected radio that could be deciphered from Berlin. And therefore the Germans could have intercepted it and realised that the Enigma had been broken by famed good gay Alan Turing and his team at Bletchley Park. Hmm. But the Germans never figured this out. The Germans never figured that out, no. Huh. Luckily. Very luckily, well. At the end of the war, Blunt was given a special secret mission by his British employers. And this has become really important later in his story. Uh, he was sent to Schloss, Freid Schloss Friedrichshof. I have to get our... Schloss Friedrichshof. Try it with me again. Schloss Friedrichshof. Schloss Friedrichshof. Yep, that. Yeah. Uh, he was sent there with the uh, royal librarian to recover what was ostensibly said to be the letters that had been sent by Kaiser Wilhelm's mother, who was the granddaughter of Queen Victoria, uh, to the British royal family. But in actuality, he was there to capture letters that had been sent by the then king's brother, Edward, Duke of Windsor, who had been Edward VII, Edward VIII before his abdication. Um, to Adolf Hitler. And this is the uh, very bad straight Edward VIII who then abdicates in order to marry the deeply unpleasant American divorcee Wallace Simpson who every day um, disproves her own maxim uh, by showing that it is distinctly possible to be both too rich and too thin. <laughs> um Anyway, these letters between Edward VIII and Adolf Hitler allegedly document his attempts to collaborate with the Nazis to provide secret information about their war plans, um, including the uh, the invasion of France via the Ardennes uh, by the Germans was sort of, as a result, it's alleged, of the information that he had passed over saying that the British troops are going to be further north towards Belgium. And actually, there's even some papers that are still missing, which... Uh, detailed the meeting between Hitler and Edward at Berchtesgaden, Hitler's retreat. Uh, viewers of uh, the Netflix drama The Crown, which I am addicted to, might recognise the story, in fact, as blunt features in, in that. So actually, in a way, um, this paranoia that 
the Western capitalist democracies are going to make a deal with Hitler, um, even though they end up fighting Hitler, is maybe not entirely unfounded. No, I'm sure not entirely unfounded, though at this point Edward VIII, or um, the Duke of Windsor, was living in exile and had had very little power, and the the accusation is that he was making these deals with Hitler in the event that uh, if there was a Nazi invasion of Britain, he would be put on the throne as a as a um, quizzling leader. And that was serious enough that he was actually moved to the Caribbean for the duration of the war by the British government. Anyway, following the war, um, Blunt left MI5 to take up this role as surveyor of the King's Pictures, as his reward, I suppose, for this this action. But he remained part of the Cambridge Five spy ring. Um, he would later claim that he'd ceased spying actively in 1945 because he no longer felt the Soviet Union was, quote, following the true principles of Marxism. However, it was extremely useful for him to be in that position. Uh, to quote author John Costello, the Kremlin must have appreciated that in the palace, Blunt could have also provided a safety net for the other Cambridge agents. No one Blunt had recruited could ever be brought to public trial in Britain without implicating Blunt. Again, to expose Blunt would be to threaten the Windsor secret. Because if Blunt is exposed, then he could reveal to the public that um, the Duke of Windsor had been collaborating with the Nazis, which is not something that the royal family would have wanted to... At the time, it could have been extremely dangerous, yeah. Meanwhile, Kim Philby, who was working at the British Embassy in Washington, was given access to information discovered by the CIA through Operation Venona, that there was a mole in British intelligence who they'd codenamed Homer, and they were very close to exposing him. And through deduction, he realised that Homer was his associate in the Cambridge Five, uh, McLean, Donald McLean. So he warned Moscow... Uh, and they decided that McLean was probably likely to crack under interrogation to blow the whole ring, and therefore they decided that they should extract McLean from the UK. Guy Burgess was also in Washington working with Philby in the British Embassy, um, but his increasingly out-of-control alcoholism was causing lots of problems for the British there. J. Edgar Hoover himself, who was the head of the FBI... Now there's a bad gay. There's a very bad gay. He complained that... that, um, that Burgess had been using embassy cars to go cruising. You wonder how he figured that out, you know? <laughs> yeah, he must have um, had his eyes on the ground somehow. Huh. It's amazing what you find when you look in the right places. <laughs> anyway, um, Burgess had been sent back to London, therefore, by the British. And so Philby decided it was best to extract both the agents. And at the end of May in 1951, a few days before McLean was due to be interviewed by MI5... Burgess accompanied him on uh, to Southampton, where they boarded a boat to France before defecting to Moscow. Blunt, meanwhile, visited Burgess's London flat, and he cleaned it of all the incriminating documents, although he actually missed some, which implicated the fifth man in the Cambridge Five, who turned out to be an agent named John Cairncross, who'd also worked at Bletchley Park during the war. Cairncross didn't manage to escape, though. And he was caught and he confessed. Um, and after that, he moved to the US and became a lecturer and he wasn't publicly identified at the time. But once the defection of McLean and Burgess became public, it was a huge scandal. So Cairncross is actually let off without trial or without punishment? Uh, yeah, essentially. Okay. And then um, after that defection or those two defections become public, um, at that point it becomes clear in 
the public's eyes that this is a five-man ring? Well, they don't know about Cairn Cross in the public eyes at this moment. They just know about the two who've defected, and they know that there is a third who aided the defection. So he becomes known as the third man. So at this point, they only think there's three. Okay. And both Philby and Blunt come under suspicion as being the third man. But due to the royal insurance policy, <laughs> they um, they remain safe. To the Good to have one of those. Yeah, to the extent that only five years later, in 1956... Blunt is actually knighted and becomes Sir Anthony Blunt. So there was this call to discover the identity of this third man who had warned MacLean. Um, Philby had resigned from MI6, but he was cleared in the House of Commons in 1955 by the Foreign Minister, Harold Macmillan, of any wrongdo- wrongdoing. But in 1961, however, Anatoly Golitsyan, apologies if I've mispronounced that, who was a major in the KGB, he defected and he began to provide the CIA with details of double agents. And Philby felt the net had been closing in. He was living in Beirut at this time. And despite being explicitly offered immunity from prosecution, if he confessed and handed over the names, he defected in 63. So following Philby's high-profile defection, Cairn Cross was again interrogated in the US a decade after his first confession by a man named Arthur Martin, who was MI5's mole hunter. And at this point... Um... Just so we understand where all of these five people are, uh, three of them have defected. Yep. So uh, Kim Philby, Burgess and McLean, they're all now living in Moscow. Right. And then Karen Cross is in the U.S. lecturing, and Blunt, the protagonist of our story, is uh, still in the U.K., having been knighted Keeper of the Queen's Pictures, Height of Society. Exactly. Okay. So at the same time, uh, the same time as all this is happening, Michael Strait, who you'll remember was a Cambridge Apostle, and he was Blunt's lover back in the 1920s. He's, uh, he's offered a chairmanship of the Advisory Council of the Arts by President Kennedy. And aware that he's likely to be vetted for this role, he tells Arthur Schlesinger, Kennedy's advisor, that back in Cambridge, Blunt had actually recruited him as an NKVD agent. This was the last piece of the puzzle for the mole hunter Arthur Martin, who finally had his man. Back in the UK, Martin interviewed Blunt at the Courtauld Art Institute, and Blunt broke. He knew that he had this royal insurance policy, but he also knew that at that point that Philby had also been offered immunity, and he assumed it would be offered to him. So he confessed, and he handed over the names of all his agents, including Cairncross, who little did he know had already been got, and uh, another former apostle, Leo Long. So, yeah, why wasn't he prosecuted? Partly because of this royal insurance policy, but also because of the political situation in England at the time. According to Peter Wright in his influential book Spycatcher, published in the 80s, despite government attempts at preventing it being published, quote, Hollis, he's referring here to Roger Hollis, who at the time was Director General of MI5, Hollis and many of his senior staff were acutely aware of the damage any public revelation of Blunt's activities might do themselves to MI5 and to the incumbent Conservative government. Harold Macmillan had finally resigned after a succession of security scandals culminating in a Profumo affair. Hollis made little secret of his hostility to the Labour Party, then riding high in public opinion, and realised only too well that a scandal on the scale that would be provoked by Blunt's prosecution would surely bring the tottering government down. It was that same Peter Wright, who wrote that book, who was then interrogating Blunt. But there was a gap of two weeks where Blunt wasn't monitored, so presumably could have destroyed a lot of material. But finally he managed to interrogate Blunt, and he said that Blunt managed to avoid naming names. Quote, Although Blunt, under pressure, expanded his information, 
It always pointed at those who were either dead, long since retired, or else comfortably out of secret access and danger. That said, uh, he had already named many who had been in, who were interrogated over the next few years, and actually many of those committed suicide, or no, none were ever prosecuted. So that was that. The game was up. Blunt was out of it. Uh, he avoided the prosecution, and the security services announced that they they wouldn't reveal his identity. Hmm. That is until 1979, 15 years later, when journalist Andrew Boyle published his book, Climate of Treason. In it, he didn't name Blunt, but he referred to him by the name Morris. And the British press obviously began to hunt for this mole, Morris. And is this Morris person in the book given these kind of identifying details, like he's an art person or an art historian or someone who's kind of high in the cultural circles? Well, it's clear that he's named Morris... Uh, based on the character of the book of the same name by E.M. Forster, who was also a Cambridge academic and homosexual. And Morris is um, written in the early 20th century and not published, I think, until the 60s or 70s, and is the first or one of the first um, gay love stories in modern fiction that has a happy ending. Yeah. Um, There is another clue, of course, which Private Eye, the satirical newspaper in the UK, um, managed to dig up, which was the fact that Blunt had actually attempted to prevent the book from being published in the courts. That's a pretty big clue. Once again, the Streisand effect. Yeah. And on 15th of November 1979, the newly elected Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, revealed Blunt's name and details of his wartime record in Parliament. And after that, he was absolutely hounded by the press as a traitor. He lived the rest of his life as a recluse, virtually. Um, So when Thatcher reveals his identity, does he still have one of these high public offices? He has all his public offices, and in fact, immediately he's stripped of his knighthood. He he loses his honorary fellowship at Trinity College, Cambridge, and he resigns his fellowship at the British Academy. His life is in tatters. Mm -hmm. Here's a quote, actually, from an author called Michael Kitson, which I think puts it into context. The press, radio and television began a campaign of vilification. Wild rumours accused him of spying for the Germans, of authenticating fakes, of salting away a fortune abroad. He was caricatured as snobbish, imperious, sexually predatory. Undoubtedly, some of the agitation was motivated by Blunt's intellectuality and homosexuality, as well as by class hatred. It's a striking fact that both Blunt's own actions and the treatment of him, not only by the public but also by officials, were pervaded at every turn by class divisions in in British society. Mm-hmm. And ironically, this is somebody who gets into this whole mess because he's trying to undo or unlock or destroy and replace this heterosexist class society. Yeah. yeah. Um, going back to E.M. Forster thing, actually, one of the reasons that he was named as E.M. Forster uh, as after this E.M. Forster character uh, in the book was because Boyle revealed that during a conversation he'd had with um, a friend about whether or not he should reveal details of his fellow spies, he quoted one of Ian Forster's dictums. If I had to choose between betraying my country and betraying my friend, I hope I should have the guts to betray my country. Well said. Yeah. However, he claimed to have regretted his role, and writing in a memoir which actually wasn't released until 2009, he said... What I did not realise is that I was so naive politically that I was not justified in committing myself to any action of this kind. The atmosphere in Cambridge was so intense, the enthusiasm for any anti-fascist activity was so great that I made the biggest mistake of my life. 
And four years after being outed and after having gone through, by all accounts, a terrible time, he died in his flat in 1983, aged 75. Died of? Natural causes. Okay. This is the life of Anthony Blunt. Now comes the part of the show where we awkwardly ask people for money. We don't have any sponsors and we're not beholden to any big media company. We made this because we think these are important stories to tell and we want to be able to keep sharing them with you. And so, in proper idealistic millennial style, we've got a Patreon for you to check out. And Patreon is a way for people to support creators, good gays like us, to keep making the things that they make. So our Patreon is at www.patreon.com slash badgayspod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash badgayspod. And we've got a lot of great rewards for you. If you give five bucks or more a month, we'll send you a recommended reading list every month with the latest publications from me and Hugh, and some other articles on queer political topics that we think are essential reading. Including stuff from the dark corners of the internet that might not be so easy to find. Higher tiers include physical gifts like zines and novels. Whatever you give is really appreciated, and we thank you so much for your support. That's patreon.com slash badgayspod. And saying nice things is always free, so if you're enjoying the show, you can rate us five stars and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us find new audiences. Thanks. Well, that's quite a story. Um, it reads like something that was written by John le Carré, but I guess this is the sort of thing that John le Carré was experiencing and writing about. Tinker's Taylor Soldier Spy is explicitly based on this case. Well, there you go. It raises a lot of questions for me. Um, and maybe the first thing we can talk about is the link between espionage and sexuality, and especially the link between espionage and homosexuality, which I know is something that you are thinking a lot about these days. Yeah, there's a really interesting link between the two, which flips consistently through the 20th century between the idea that homosexuals are natural spies because they live a life of subterfuge based around codes and close friendships and also homophobically deception and lying, that they make actually very good spies. And that's interspersed with these periods of panic where they're seen to be um, liable to blackmail and deception and fraud in such a way that they actually they become national security threats. So in the 1930s, it does seem clear that around Cambridge, the uh, the sort of homosexual relations that were um, that were prevalent there were used to build spy rings on on both sides and also in on other aspects of British society. Whereas in the 1950s. Um, there starts the lavender scare in the United States, which is this idea, this McCarthyite idea that um, that homosexuals are a national security threat and therefore should be drummed out of public life, and that does spread in the nineteen late late nineteen fifties into the UK, explicitly at the request of the Americans, and that does begin to become a crackdown on gay people serving in the security services. And maybe this is where um, some of these associations between communism and homosexuality start to be built, at least in the Western capitalist democracies, is in the kind of crucible of these Cold War panics that are both sex panics and national security panics, and that are also related to the idea that communism is going to destroy the family, that communism is going to come and attack religion, that communism is going to 
really attack all of these kind of traditional um, life ways and life roles that uh, people are thought to enjoy. Yeah, and I think I think within the Red Scare, within, within the McCarthy, McCarthyist ideology, it, that's an explicit project of realising that if you can tie the, the form of life that people assume homosexuals to lead to that of communists and suggest that these are intrinsically linked forms of behaviour which are um, anti, anti-family, are deceptive, are conducted in the shadows, you know, and, and are potentially all around you, just like people could assume in the 1950s were starting to realise that actually they could be surrounded by secret gays. They, that, that was a useful model for McCarthy to then say, the Reds are the same. Huh. It was, a, it was really deeply paranoid. And yet there were a lot of communist gays on both sides of the Atlantic. Absolutely, yeah. And there were a lot of communist gays in, in other parts of Europe as well. I mean, there's a really deep association between Marxian politics and these kind of early politics of sexual liberation. Um, as we've discussed before on this show, the German movements are led before the Nazi period by this, not communist, but socialist uh, Jew, Magnus Hirschfeld. The American gay liberation movement uh, is founded in the early 1950s by a group of people who have all met each other in the American Communist Party and many of whom live in a communist enclave in Echo Park, uh, Silver Lake in L.A. Actually, the way that I first started researching uh, those people was that I wanted to research some left-wing gays and a professor of mine who was a red diaper baby who had also grown up in this communist enclave um, alongside actually also the uh, gay, renowned American music conductor Michael Tilson Thomas um, remembered that basically the father of two of her friends had run away from his family to join this gay group, and that turned out to be Harry Hay, and that's how that work got started. But to get back to Blunt for a second, um, what's interesting to me is that, one, it's the communism, and two, it's this particular kind of um, artistically infused... um, expressionist, esoteric, I mean, I'm, I'm being very imprecise here, but this is not a kind of dry, economistic, orthodox Marxism, right? This is a, a communism that also has a lot to do with feeling that one is part self-consciously of a cultural avant-garde, and that certainly in the other um, kind of places I've studied where communism is having an effect on the formation of gay identities, it's that kind of... Um, again, esoteric or expressionist or cultural um, leftism that is um, really prevalent. Sure. And and that is definitely a theme in Cambridge at the time and uh, and in the US and across sort of socialist movements. But I don't know how much you can attribute that to the Cambridge Five and to Blunt. For a start, Blunt arrives at Cambridge in 1926 during a general strike and is very taken with the economic uh, sort of organisation of the general strike and then is influenced again by uh, Morris Dobbs who we referenced earlier who's again a, a re- renowned for being an extremely dry economist, Marxist economist and 
Likewise, then, uh, at the end of that, that sort of period in the late 1930s, I mean, obviously they are politically moved by uh, the idea of it as an anti-fascist struggle, but they then are thrown into this, um, again, quite dry, well, dry is not the right word, but like um, very serious, sober struggle of um, the Second World War. So, you know, like, I don't think, I don't know the degree to which, uh, obviously he has this interest in the arts, but they're quite conservative in themselves. And actually then his engagement with um, with communism is through the NKVD and then the KGB, which are hardly um, sort of liberatory, hippie, wild child hmm. forms of socialist and communist uh, politics. That's true. You may be embarking up the wrong tree or, or looking for connections that aren't there. Um, maybe a sort of a final point to talk a little bit about before we wrap this episode up. Um, I think it's interesting um, to look, and again to go back to this idea that uh, homosexuals make good spies because they live double lives and they talk in code and they're you know running around in subterfuge. I mean, we have looked at a few people already on this show who do spend a lot of time um, living these double lives. And I wonder if we can think about maybe not the kind of essentialist blood libel sort of homophobic slur of, well, you know, because of your sadness and deception, you're going to, you know, live this horrible secret double life all the time. But maybe think about the ways in which actually having to learn how to live in the margins or the shadows of a society does actually equip you to operate in these very complicated ways and to kind of play loyalties off of one another. Yeah, um, I mean, with specific reference to, to, to espionage in, in British period at this time, I, I, think, I think to an extent the two are linked because people were um first of all they were more liable to blackmail because of their sex lives which they did have to conduct in secrecy right because again as we've discussed on this show um in the 50s we're at least 10 years out from the 1967 decriminalization of sodomy so people's lives could be still ruined by the accusation and by the conviction absolutely and a good example of this is um the vassal affair which happens in again in the early 60s um just before just sorry just following philby's uh, defection and this is the, the case of a british naval attache to moscow who is Caught, well, he's who who confesses to espionage on behalf of the Soviets and spends actually I think twenty years in prison as a result, not tied up with this upper class um, spying, but purely because for ten years earlier in Moscow he had been caught in bed with uh, a barber to a to, to a, a KGB agent or something like this, but the KGB had like entrapped him essentially and blackmailed him for ten years. He had no ideological tie whatsoever to the Soviet Union. He'd just been blackmailed because of his sexuality. Huh. But both uh, both with Burgess and then obviously with Vassal, the press very much explicitly tried to link their sexuality and their, their dissolute lifestyles with their espionage, which is partly how those two things become linked in the popular imagination in the first place. You know, this essentialist idea that gays are dissolute. Mm -hmm. Um 
Burgess himself was uh, had terrible, terrible problems with alcoholism, and he died very quick, very soon after he def- defected. In fact, huh? Well, if people want to learn more about this fascinating story, uh, what are some places that they could turn? There's a great deal about it. Um, Anthony Blunt, His Lives by Miranda Carter is a biography of Blunt, and then there are plenty of um, sort of spy books, uh, memoirs that recount the period. Um, Spy Catcher by Peter Wright, obviously being one of the most famous. Uh, Climate of Treason by Andrew Boyle. And The Mask of Treachery by John Costello. And there's also a book called Stalin's Englishman, The Lives of Guy Burgess, which obviously follows more of uh, Burgess's life. And then also um, Spartacus Educational, who we referenced in an earlier podcast, is a really great resource into this area. Incredible. And uh, I think we can also really heartily recommend Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, both the book by John Le Carre and the 2011 film adaptation, which I thought was really stunning. Absolutely. We seem to have almost forgotten to issue our verdict here. So, um, Anthony Blunt, you bad gay or not bad gay? You know what? My view has changed throughout this. When I started researching him, I thought, sad gay, but not bad gay. But the more I think about it, uh, although the last couple of years of his life were clearly quite tragic, I, I see him as quite an honourable man to an extent. Like he seemed to defend a lot of his friends throughout it. He was motivated by um, quite utopian, idealistic, positive attitudes, and uh, he sort of just got tangled up in something maybe that he couldn't really extricate himself from. But I feel like he was as much a victim of uh, a lot of really unpleasant social attitudes that really made it a lot harder for him and a lot of those were related to his sexuality i don't think he would be treated quite so badly if he didn't have this uh yeah if he, if he wasn't gay and wasn't so uh so gay about his gayness perhaps hmm. what do you think yeah i mean i think complicated gay for sure um it's interesting the extent to which both changes in what the politics of the Soviet Union were like towards Stalinism and domestic changes in politics conspired to make this very passionate, youthful, idealistic decision into a real disaster. And I mean, I guess we can just be happy that the Germans didn't manage to interfere with any of this communication that was being sent over very insecure channels. So we've got an agreed vote for Complicated Gay. Um, So that wraps up our episode for this week. If you want to support the show on Patreon, you can do that. We've talked earlier in the show about how that works. Uh, You can follow the show on Twitter at BadGaysPod. You can follow me personally, Ben Miller, on Twitter at BenWritesThings. And I'm at Hugh Lemmy. Thanks so much. See you next week. Mm -hmm.